This is your captain speaking. Welcome aboard DJ's Aviation Podcast. This is your home for everything aviation. From the latest news on aircraft, airlines, and airports, to documenting travel journeys unlike any other across the globe. Be sure to check out our second YouTube channel, Globetrotting at DJ's Aviation, where you'll find analytically driven coverage of the industry, which aims to answer your most burning questions. But for now, we're next in line for takeoff. So I'll pass you over to our host for today's proceedings, Dan. So I very much appreciate it. I just thought we'd jump into it because, like we said, it's it's quite early in uh, both of our locations. So I don't want to keep you too long. I know you've probably got a, a busy day ahead. Um, as you know, as always, it's good to be busy, to be honest. Um We've got a couple of areas to cover for today's uh, interview. I would love to learn a little bit more about you, and obviously the main reason we're here being Fly Atlantic. I think the perfect place to begin, though, is with you, and I think one of the first things you're able to notice about your career is the wealth of experience you've had in the aviation industry across many different companies, um, many different roles as well. Can you tell me a little bit about those previous experiences you've had, how maybe they came about, and what you've taken with you into your position today now with Fly Atlantic? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> look, I started with the uh, I started in the full service uh, airline sector, and airline was was pretty much in my blood because my father was a cockpit crew um, in the distant past for BEA, which was the predecessor to, to British Airways. So. You know, I grew up uh, going to airports, looking at aeroplanes, you know, that, that background was, was always there. So aviation was always a passion. And, and actually, I even I wanted to be a helicopter pilot uh, with, with the Army in, in, um, in, in Britain and then fail my eyesight test on uh, color blindness. So I, I, I couldn't do that. So frustrated in that area, I, I joined the airline industry and went for civil aviation. So I started at British Airways doing every job imaginable, actually. A lot of a lot of airport jobs, a lot of commercial jobs. Uh, then had a, a, a kind of sabbatical from aviation for 13 years when I started working in Hong Kong. But I came back to aviation again through the full service airline route by working for Cathay Pacific for seven years. Uh, and then about uh, 2004, um, I was a little bit frustrated at basically having having worked in the same niche area at Cathay for a long period of time. So I decided to have a look at setting up my own airline, and that was Viva Macau. Um, yeah, it sounds daft, actually, but I bought a book in an airport bookshop on, on a stopover, which was called How to Start an Airline or something like that. And just on the plane, I thought, that doesn't sound so difficult, you know. It, it sounds a ridiculous story, but it was pretty much like that. Uh, the, the Viva Macau story, you know, was, was very complex, but we basically got the airline uh, into position and started operating, which in itself was an achievement because Macau was a monopoly environment for airlines at that time. So there was a lot of politics about it. Uh, and that was the first in a, in a series of startups that I got involved with. Uh, I was also involved with setting up the first um, low-cost airline in Russia called Avianova. And um, then a couple of, uh, well, an airline in Cyprus called Cobalt. Uh, I also worked at the low-cost airlines, um, Vietjet in Vietnam and uh, Wow Air in Iceland. 
And it was really the, the time at Wow Air in Iceland that um, gave me the inspiration for Fly Atlantic because Wow Air was, was operating a very similar model to the one we intend to model. So uh, we intend to operate. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it l- runs into 13 airlines over 11 countries. So it's, it's a pretty rich uh, tapestry of experience. You, you asked what I bring to bring from all that experience to Fly Atlantic. I, I mean, I'm certainly um, used to starting airlines, developing business plans, raising capital for airlines. I, I think the wow experience so in Iceland is directly relevant to what I'm doing at Fly Atlantic. That's, um, I find it very interesting. At the beginning, you did mention that you sort of started off doing a host of different roles at the airport. And uh, having spoken to other people within the industry, actually a lot of people start in that area as well, whether it's handling the baggage, doing face-to-face, and it gives them that opportunity to try out a host of different roles before really finding what they enjoy or what they're good at, whether they take a break or whether they dive into upper management many years down the line. So uh, I I find that very interesting. And you mentioned just at the the end there, Fly Atlantic, and that's one of the main reasons we're here today for a a bit of a discussion. And this is the airline that you're the chief executive officer of. For people that do not know, you're hoping to operate uh, low-cost transatlantic flights from 2024. And uh, you'll be based out of Belfast, linking Europe to North America. So you did mention Wow Air previously, and you said how that really spurred it on. Is there any more you can sort of dive into about how this airline came to fruition? Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, um, I, I was working on a project in Cyprus uh, called Tuss Airways um, and working on a restructuring of that airline, um, a transition actually from operating pretty old Fokker aircraft to bringing in um, uh, A320s. When COVID uh, struck, you know, pretty much as we were um, right right at the most critical point of that, that transition, changing equipment and changing the business plan. So um, COVID in, in Cyprus, well, COVID itself in Cyprus, maybe the impact was not so huge, but the, the ramifications of the lockdowns in Cyprus were very serious for the airline industry. The, the, the island was sort of closed down for a period of time. So in, in that uh, situation, I mean, we couldn't do much more work on, on the Tour Airways project. And I relocated to the UK in, in 2020 to, um, to look at our, our opportunities. And it was at that point that the, the concept came back into my head of, of looking at um, an airline that built on the strengths of the Wow Air model but also address some of the weaknesses of the Wow Air model. Uh, in other words, um, you know, taking the best out of that experience, but but tweaking it uh, because Wow itself had um, gone down, I think, in 2019 or 2018, and so clearly um, that that model wasn't sustainable as it was being executed. But it had a lot of potential, I thought, for <clears throat> long-term profitability and for being a successful um, a successful type of airline. So the idea really came, um, you know, the gestation period was from, I guess, mid-2020 onwards, um, took shape over the rest of 2020, over 2021, looking at, um, well, we developed a business plan and then had to look at which airport would be a suitable base and a suitable hub uh, hub for the operation. Because key to this um, was the idea that, um, you know, one of the reasons that WOW had failed was the problem of being based in a very expensive uh, economy, operating out of a very expensive airport. 
Uh, and so, um, you know, the, the, the obvious thing to fix in, in the beginning was to find an airport that um, delivered the operational capabilities we require, but also offered the the pricing and the economic structure that we require to make a success of the airline. <clears throat> so a lot of work initially went into negotiations with airports and choosing a suitable base and a suitable hub. And that, that was run on through 2021, most of 2021. So you'd say it's very much a, for example, we've, we've talked a lot about Wow Air, you'd say it very much comes down to nitpicking that as a business, taking a look at what went right and also what went wrong. And then, and I'm sure there are other airlines you also studied. And, and again, you've had that wealth of experience where you've done a lot of this before. So you're able to look at, hey, I probably would want to do this a little bit differently. You did mention, uh, of, of course, the airport and the geographical location as being hugely important. And aside from what you mentioned, uh, I think probably the biggest thing when someone looks at a new airline is where it's going to be based out of. And as we know, that's going to be Belfast International. Um, so by what you said, are there any other advantages to picking this airport as a home location? Um, I think another issue around uh, WOW, and I don't want to keep referencing WOW, it was a very good airline. Had, had a lot of great people in it. it. It was it was sad that it went down. But I think you know what Belfast has, what Northern Ireland has, is is a much bigger catchment population. You know, uh, Iceland is three hundred and fifty thousand people. We're we're here in Northern Ireland with one point eight million. So it's it's a much bigger um, home population. But also, of course, we're sitting in a position where we can service two very important markets. One is the North America Ireland market, and the other is the North America and UK market, and these are two of the the, the biggest um, markets across the North Atlantic. Um, and Belfast is uniquely placed to serve as a gateway both to the island of Ireland and also to the, to the rest of the UK. So it's um, from that point of view, the market size was was also a big factor. Um, geographical positioning, of course, because. That, that's critical to getting the operation right and being able to operate uh, transatlantically and a, a long way into the US and into Canada using the, the new generation of narrow-bodied aircraft. So, so these were factors. And I think um, another element here was that we, we got, uh, we expected to get, and we did receive good political support locally uh, from all the political parties in Northern Ireland. So the political context was good as well. Uh, and so one, one final point, which actually is, is, is perhaps also very critical, is that whereas in the UK, um, mainland, if, if you fly from Britain, you're paying uh, over £80 pounds in, in departure tax for long-haul flights. Uh, out of Northern Ireland, there is no uh, departure tax on long-haul flights. So immediately you've built in a, a, a pretty important um, uh, advantage vis-a-vis -vis passengers who are using Belfast rather than flying from, say, Manchester or Glasgow or London. I find it interesting that you mentioned the catchment and the population. Um, funnily enough, when I was preparing for this interview, being Australian myself, populations in every single area probably isn't at the top of my forte. Um, so I was just very curious and did actually look up the population of Northern Ireland. But then I did also look up how you said the population of other areas where we've seen these similar business models. And it was interesting to see like you said, just the large difference. You're, you're moving from a couple hundred thousand to, well, into the millions, which I'm sure makes a huge difference in regarding demand. And it, it leaves you probably filled with a little bit more confidence than, say, approaching a market that may only have, 
100,000 or 200,000 with such a, a big idea. Um, one of the, I think this is probably leaning on more the fun questions. Uh, one of the, obviously when we see a new airline, there's multiple different areas that are critically important, but I think maybe one that flies under the radar and maybe picked up more by the enthusiasts is the branding and the livery that's featured. And there's been a lot of questions about the Fly Atlantic concept livery, if it is, that has been featured on the aircraft. Um, did you want to dive into maybe the meaning behind it or how it came about? <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't read too much into it. I mean, uh, you know, people read a lot into, into liveries and names. And, you know, in my experience in the airline industry, what... Um, owners of airlines in particular focus on um oddly enough it would be liveries names um branding and and cabin crew uniforms these these are sort of big issues for them uh where they, they get very emotional and very committed and you know it sparks big arguments at the board level um the, the fly atlantic uh, livery i mean i like it very much um i'm i'm Somebody recently did a, um, a, a production where they put all the liveries of the various airlines I've been associated with together on one 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 sheet, and I I I, I do take livery and branding seriously, obviously, because it is at the core of customer appeal. Um, but I I mean the the um, you probably need to talk to the designers rather than me about the meaning behind it. I think it's that there are the two issues. First of all, you could interpret the livery as a New York skyline. Um, and so the the transatlantic element is certainly there, and then you can also interpret it as a series of digital codes. So it's indicative of a of a cutting edge new type of airline. I mean, I, I don't want to be prescriptive about how you should interpret it. I think it's down to the individual actually. But I know we'll have a lot of fun rolling out the brand, and we may fine tune and tweak that brand. I hope, and I think the name will stay intact. I think it, it's simple, it's direct. It, it, it you know, airline is what's what's written on the tin. And, um, you know, we'll have a lot of fun with, with all those design elements. That is, the, um, that, that is one of the, 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 the more exciting elements of starting a, a new airline. There are many, but that, that's central to it. I'm sure it can also be one of the most difficult and challenging tasks as well, securing something that you're happy with and everyone's happy with and not changing five minutes later and thinking, oh, maybe this idea is better than this one. Well, you know, that right the way through um, all, all the startups I've been involved with, I think you know you, you have to recognise that um, you, you can't you can't do these things by committee. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you hear a name and it sticks and it works. Uh, in in Macau, ironically, my my first startup. I mean, we originally called that airline Wow Macau. Um, ironic in, in the light of me later working in Iceland for Wow Air. We couldn't use Wow Macau because Lufthansa had a cargo program that had to have the name Wow in it. So they they sent uh, a letter and we we dropped that name, and we brainstormed um, you know around the, the table uh, while whilst drinking a few uh, a few pints of beer. We brainstormed on on what to call the airline, and uh, you know suggestion number four hundred and twenty eight was was Viva Macau, and and it worked very well. And, and the minute you hear the name. You know, you know, it's right and it fits. Um, you know, it has to require, it, it's not a process where, which you can approach too rationally or systematically. You have to rely on um, that spark of, of inspiration. But flight like, didn't require 428 attempts. I think mean, it was very, very simple, very straightforward, and very easy to, to, to coin that, uh, that, that name for the end. 
which must be nice. And you did mention on the delivery front, you could interpret it however you want, but you could definitely say potentially, say, the New York uh, City skyline. And I guess that does lead me on to a question regarding your network, which of course is going to be hugely important. You've briefly mentioned some areas that you would like to target. At this point, have you taken a look at any specific cities maybe that would be of interest, whether it be on the uh, North American side or the other? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I don't think we could put a business plan together if we hadn't looked at where we want to fly and how we want to fly. Um, um, you know, assessing the size of fleet and, and the economic results from that. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I may have inadvertently given away one of our destinations, but I'm sure that's not a big shock if if, um, if people deduce from all this that we, we might fly to New York. You know, that won't be a surprise. But I, I do want to be quite guarded in what we say about the rest of the network. And I think, the, you know, the, the obvious point is we don't want to flag to, to the competition where we're going to operate uh, at this stage to nearly two years out from, from a launch. But the, the, other, the other issue here, Daniel, is that, that things change, as we well know from, from the, the pandemic. You know, situations change, circumstances change. And what we envisage today as a network um, almost inevitably will be will be modified before we get to the end. It's particularly true of the feeder network because um, you know whilst whilst we don't let our competitors determine where we fly, it would be uh, it would be crazy to to ignore what they're doing and and to um, you know just blindly plow ahead and fly where we want to fly. So there'll there'll definitely be a lot of modifications and evolution before we we actually get into the air. Um, in broad geographical terms, you know, we'll be we'll be in focused on the northeast um, quadrant of, of the US. We'll be focused on eastern Canada. Uh, no plans to go to the west coast, um, and we will be looking at, um, in terms of feeder network, a, a lot of points in the rest of the UK, but also um, Central Europe, Eastern Europe. Um, you know, right the way down to um, you know places like Israel, Egypt, Lebanon, Cyprus. Of course. Um, And look, to have any kind of network, fleet is hugely important, but that can also change from, as as you said, different circumstances. I mean, take a look at the pandemic, something we never thought would happen. And overnight, everything changes at a moment's notice. And for you as well, it completely threw off your plans, but also created a new opportunity in how you've said with with Fly Atlantic. Uh, A couple of the reports have indicated a 737 MAX type aircraft and A321 Neo. Correct me if I'm wrong there on the Neo. I'm not too sure if it was the 321 just strictly or the uh, the new engine option. Um, Talk to me about how how the decisions come about in terms of aircraft. Obviously, nothing firm at the moment, but how as an airline you determine a, a specific plane is a good candidate? Well, coming into this project, uh, Daniel, yeah, I talked about the 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 the, the how can I put it? the flaws in the WOW business plan and what what didn't go right. And part of the problem there was the mix of aircraft types. Um, so you come into this knowing that you need a single aircraft type that could do all the missions in the business plan, and you also come into this, or I came into this exercise knowing that the economics, route economics changed dramatically with the introduction of the new uh, engine option on on um, both the max and, and and the 321 so that enables airlines to look at uh, single aisle um relatively small aircraft on transatlantic operations and that wasn't necessarily the case 
five, seven, ten years ago. That that has changed the economics on on the North Atlantic. So if you if you if you take the position that right, we're going to go for narrow-bodied single-aisle aircraft, then then the options um, come down to to really the Max or, or the three two one uh, Neo. Um, you know, there, there may be. Well, no, I, I think that there are. I mean, it basically comes down to, to those two aircraft types and making an evaluation of, of which one works better for the network. We're keeping our options open. I, I think the plan has leaned towards the three, two, one up until now. Um, there may be an option to to switch to to the max. We're evaluating that, and you know, part of um, well, it, it's a complex process, but. Uh, let's say that we're we're leaning in the direction of three, two, one, but we haven't ruled out the max as uh, as an option. It will come down to, uh, of course, it will come down to cost and how that that flows through our business plan. Also, comes down to issues like the availability of aircraft at, at a certain time. Uh, but they're both they're both good aircraft. The max has, as you know, you know, there's a number of variants: um, the the seven hundred, the eight hundred, the nine hundred. So. Um, you know, a lot to think about, uh, but decisions have to be made now because the lead time for getting these aircraft um, uh, specs, as we would put it in, in a technical sense, the lead time for getting these aircraft ready for operation in summer 2024 is is pretty much now. You know, we, we've got to make decisions very quickly in that area. I've always said uh, with regards to fleet, there's always a lot of flexibility there. It can always be quite a complicated decision as well but one of the the main things i've always said to many people is in the aviation industry a let's say five-year period is not actually that long in advance like you sort of have said have right here we've got to make decisions right now for 2024 whereas in maybe another business you'll do it in incremental year planning and while to a certain extent in a business for aviation you can do year planning there are some decisions that have to be made five years in advance and for an established carrier even longer than that because like you said you deal with the availability the costs oh this aircraft needs to be replaced with this one so naturally that's almost moving me into the next topic of the the challenges when it comes to starting a new airline and especially for fly atlantic it's i'm sure as you know nothing is smooth sailing there's always bumps in the road maybe when you don't want it um so with regards to fly atlantic it's a business model we've seen occur many times now when there's, like you said, there's been issues with some and it's worked with others. How do you believe as an airline, Fly Atlantic will be able to sustain demand year round? Because we have seen in some areas, there's peaks, there's low points. Do you think the, the larger catchment will help with that or a route network? Yeah, I mean, seasonality is what you're really um, focused on here, Daniel. You know, the fact that North Atlantic is is a... a, a a seasonal market where you have big big numbers traveling in the summer and relatively smaller numbers in the winter how, how do you deal with that i mean what what you've really got to look at is is taking some of the aircraft off the north atlantic in in, in the winter season and using them in other markets and looking at what we would call in in the, in the business acmi operations so you you put those aircraft out to our operators to to fly for example um, you know, sunbird operations in, in North America or, or wherever that's, that's just one example. Um, so matching capacity to demand is, is a big challenge. It's a big challenge in every market. I mean, it was a big challenge for me when I was working in Cyprus. Uh, it, it's certainly a similar challenge here. I think, um, you know, you talk about many people who've tried this model, but I'm not sure that's quite true. I mean, it's a relatively small number of airlines that have tried 
you know, the, the low-cost model on, on the North Atlantic. And, you know, those who have gone before, like Norwegian, like Primera, like WOW, have sort of left a mass of empirical data for us to sift through and, and analyze. So I'd say, um, you know, we're, we're learning from mistakes made in the past. Um, but, you know, in terms of a model that uses a new generation aircraft that uses a base which is uh, provides us with a very strong cost uh, cost advantage uh, and which has a sizable catchment in terms of both inbound and outbound traffic. I think that model probably hasn't been um, properly properly tested before. So we, we are first in that regard. Those changes may seem a little bit subtle to some people, but I think they're pretty much central to the question of, of sustainable profitability and that's that's what we're chasing here because you know wow air was profitable it did achieve uh, profitability quite quickly um what it couldn't do was sustain that profitability and you know without without um you know re-examining the wounds too deeply and, and reopening any of those wounds i think one of the problems was that they 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 invested in wide-bodied aircraft you know they they went into uh, building a fleet of six uh, a330s um, without really having a clear plan for how those aircraft were going to be used. Um, that, that was one of the factors which led to their demise. But, you know, when they, when they were operating a narrow-bodied fleet, and when they were building a network, they, they did achieve profitability, which is, is, is very encouraging. Um, of course, and I think one of the biggest takeaways, I guess, from this piece so far that we've had and the, and the chat we've had is really examining other airlines and, weaknesses that we may have seen but also you're in a like you said a different a region completely you have the larger catchment so you're correct i guess in saying that it is just a little bit different while you're also taking key points from those other airlines uh, as we move into the last few questions this is a community driven one before we get on to looking towards the future uh, someone was curious in learning a little bit more about plans for belfast international they wanted to understand if there were any future plans to i guess develop the facilities there or did you believe as an airline that they're more than adequate and up to date i guess in comparison to maybe european counterparts um I, I think the, the the airport needs needs investment. You know, I, I think we've we've spoken to the airport about what needs to be to be fixed, if you like, before we begin operations. I think the airport has been very responsive on that, and they have plans in hand to to to, to build stuff and to improve the infrastructure to the point where we can make this work from day one. The airport area itself, uh, and I'm I'm sitting in the airport hotel just a, a few yards off the perimeter fence. I mean, the airport. A state is huge, and it, it does provide scope for developing. Dare I say, you know, a new terminal in time, a separate terminal for Fly Atlantic. It, it has space for developing a maintenance facility, a training center. We've been looking at a green technology center that, that might be developed here. Um, so there's plenty of room to expand, and I think it has huge potential. Um, there have been problems with the airport in the past uh, at peak periods. Um, but I think we're very encouraged by the commitment of um, uh, airport management to invest in, in supporting the Fly Atlantic um, um, hub, hub concept. And it, it feels like the support from whether it be the government, whether it be the airport, whether it be the local councils has been so important and fundamental in getting Fly Atlantic to where you are now. Um, obviously, I'm sure it would have been far more difficult and maybe not as possible if you didn't have that support. Uh, so I'm sure for you as a chief executive, that's that's great to hear. 
we did mention that, look, 2024 is not far away. It's the unfortunate reality. It sounds far, but look, it's going to come at a moment's notice. (laughs) So for you as a chief executive and planning out Fly Atlantic in the next, well, look, it's going to be a year and a half at the moment now, uh, what does the plan look like? What are some of the most pressing tasks away from, we already discussed aircraft um, and I guess finalizing the route network, but more the areas maybe people are not too familiar with that needs to be secured? Well, clearly it's, you know, the big, the big challenge is building a team and building a, a corporate culture. Um, you know, the, our team will be drawn, um, yeah, 95% of them will be, will be Northern Ireland recruits. So we're, we're building a team of, of local people. Um, but the, the, <coughs> the challenge, of course, is instilling um, our values and building a corporate culture that's strong and resilient going forward. Uh, I, I think that in some ways that's the most interesting part of this job and the most fascinating part, but it's certainly challenging um, finding the right people at the right time for the right positions. And, and the, the second point, at the right time, is very critical here because, of course, we're managing funds very carefully prior to generating revenues and selling tickets. And so you've really got to fine-tune this very, very carefully to ensure that you don't have you know, 100 people sitting around an office with nothing much to do and then the other extreme that, you know, you're you're close to launch and you suddenly discover that some key functions are understaffed or undermanned. You know, uh, the, the the challenge is to get this exactly right. Um, I, I liken it. I'm a, I'm a private pilot. I was a private pilot. I haven't flown for a while, but I like liken it to landing a small plane in, on a windy day. You know, you've got to find that sweet spot on the runway and then get it down at the right moment to avoid bumping and bumping along the runway. And it's it's measuring resources so that you hit that sweet spot um, and you don't have too many people doing too little, but you don't have too few people with with functions being stretched uh, beyond beyond the limit. It's a fascinating job, but that that would be the biggest challenge. Just a word on on the political support. I mean, the the council in in Northern Ireland, Antrim, uh, Antrim and Newton Abbey Council have been fantastic in giving great support to the project. There has been... Uh, a bit of a political impasse in Northern Ireland. Uh, we don't want to go into immense detail on that. It's a complex issue, but I think that has unfortunately um, limited some of the political support we've got from from the local government here. So we're hoping that impasse will be resolved um, in in early 2023, and that we can get more enthusiastic backing from from government here. Mm-hmm. You said uh, regarding the resources and I guess the resource management and not having too many people in one role and not having too little in the other. It is a fine line and I think we have discussed it very briefly, but look, it can can stretch to many other airlines, many other companies, even away from the industry, but actually having a thorough plan and a plan that works, uh, taking the time, not rushing into things. Um, Again, not to reopen wounds, but you mentioned WOW Air and the the, the idea that they had those wide bodies and, and weren't totally sure what to do with them, potentially with a plan, maybe those 330s wouldn't have arrived or maybe we would have seen them deployed on specific services that may have worked. Um, and I find that absolutely fascinating. And, and look, new airline launches are always incredibly intriguing to me. So that's why I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and, and, and dive into a little bit and to end it on a fun note rather than taking a look at, say, the challenges or the market or the climate. Um, launching a new airline is is a big thing. So having being, being the chief executive, pardon me, and, and having that role, uh, what would you say is the biggest advantage or the so far the most memorable 
moment, if you will, uh, as being the chief executive of Flight Atlantic? Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a really tough question, uh, Daniel. I mean, I, I would say that every startup I've been involved with has been very exciting. And, and the, of course, the most exciting moment is, is the inaugural flight, uh, when, when the dream becomes um, you know, a, a, a reality. That, that's always the high point. Of course, we're not at that stage with, with Fly Atlantic so far. I, I think in this process, um, unveiling the brand and, and going public on the airline has, has been the high point so far. But you know, this this is as as a famous statesman once said. You know, the the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. So you know, we're we're still in very early days, and I think you know, to be to be honest, a lot of the excitement is still to come. And um, you know, what 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 are those milestones? Of course, it's the, the inaugural flight. But before you have the inaugural flight, you, you have a proving flight with the regulator. That's always an exciting moment. When, when you you get the team together on a plane and you, you go off somewhere nice, you know, we'll fly to somewhere suitably exotic, I'm sure. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the opening of the offices, the, 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 the first graduation for, 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 for cabin crew, the first pilots to come through the door, all, all of these are very, very memorable uh, milestones in the development of an airline. They're all exciting. Um, we had a lot of fun in all the startups I've been involved with up until now. I don't see Flight Atlantic deviating from that pattern at all. That's lovely to hear that the passion is there. And look, this this goes right back to the beginning when we were discussing how you started in all those roles and having that burning passion for aviation. And look, going out and watching the planes, that was the same for me. At a very young age, I also went out and watched the planes. Uh, so it's great to see the enthusiasm, the excitement. And look, to add on to that, even little things for Flight Atlantic, whether it be a uniform arriving, the first plane, hearing news about it's it's all when you're, in, I guess you could say, part of that experience and helping run it like you said there's always that sense of pride for every little thing that maybe someone else wouldn't think uh that wraps up everything i had for today i wanted to thank you very very much for your time obviously it's early in the uk and it's now 2 a.m here in uh, the eastern part of canada uh, i look very fo- much forward to seeing the development of fly atlantic in the future uh hopefully jump on board one of your flights as well when you guys get up in the air um and yeah look forward to maybe catching up again maybe many months down the road to see how you guys are tracking that would be a pleasure daniel thanks very much yeah and a very warm welcome to your destination please keep your seatbelt fastened for the following this has been the dj's aviation podcast one of the most unique podcasts on the internet offering up your one-stop shop for all things aviation from news to incredible stories detailing trips worldwide Leave a review and follow the podcast on your preferred streaming platform. For onward connections, check us out on Twitter at DJ's Aviation or the show notes to join our partner Discord server, see the website, and more. And we'd like to thank you sincerely for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back on board shortly for another episode of the DJ's Aviation Podcast.